0: It's Wednesday, October the 25th, and you're very welcome to the latest installment of the Politics Podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan, and today I was joined in studio by our social affairs correspondent, Kitty Holland, columnist Fintan O'Toole, and political editor, Pat Leahy. We discussed what the recent banking tracker mortgages scandal means for Irish society and Irish politics later in the podcast. But first of all, I asked Kitty about an opinion piece which she had written in Tuesday's Irish Times, which criticised the decision by the Oireachtas Committee on the Eighth Amendment to defer its recommendation... On constitutional change,
2: um, yeah, I mean there, there was a, a vote last week. Uh, there was controversy about what what they would vote on at all, but um, there were a number of motions put before it um, at the end of the first module, which was looking at the constitutional issues on whether they should repeal the Eighth Amendment. And as I understand, there were at least eight motions put forward, all calling for. A straightforward repeal of the Eighth Amendment and then to go on and look at the legislation of the second module. And it seems that Fina Gale and Fina Fall got together to scupper this um, and didn't want to have a vote on this at all and was going to put down a motion saying that there would, should be no vote at all until the end of the second module. Now, that goes against the pl- agreed plan of work that was drawn up in July, which said there would be a decision made at the end of each module. And to my mind, it's just completely anti-democratic and um, and sort of conservative politics reigning over the bodies of women um, because uh, it's, it seems clear now that Fianna Fáil and Vila Gael in particular don't want to make a decision on whether they would recommend repealing the Eighth Amendment because they want to hold that Trump card close to their chest so that they can argue for the most restrictive legislation possible in the second module which is looking at what legislation and it's clear that all that they feel that they can get past their own grassroots um, which I think is quite patronising to their own grassroots is a very restrictive abortion um, legislation based on fatal fetal abnormalities. Now people also talk about um, it being based on rape but um, to my mind you can't legislate for rape. How do you prove That you've been raped that in here already
0: yeah yeah, yeah. so the yeah. only
2: way that you can ensure that someone who has been raped and wants a termination can get a termination is to provide for abortion without question on request up to 12 10 or 12 weeks
0: what about though if if and it seems quite likely this that there is not a majority on the committee for uh for agreeing to repeal the 8th amendment at this point if that's the case is it not is there not an element of real politic here that that the committee has agreed all it can agree at this mm-hmm. point, which is that there will be a change of some sort.
2: Yeah, I mean I suppose I mean that's true, but I suppose the point of my article and my opinion piece was that there's there's this um huge sort of excitement and fervor out there I discern, particularly among young women in Dublin, I suppose in Limerick and Corcoran. Um that there is going to be a repeal of the Eighth Amendment. There's a sense that it's going to happen. It's inevitable. It's uh, you know it's a done deal, and we just need to get that referendum but, but now. Surely
0: that's a mistaken feeling.
2: It, it is. It is a mistaken feeling, and I and I suppose what we saw last week at the Eighth Amendment Committee underlines that and underscores that, and that's what I was saying in the piece. Was it should you know it should be a, a line in the sand or a clarion call or whatever, a reminder, a wake up call to people that this is not a done deal. This is there's a big struggle, a big fight ahead, and a lot of people who I see and who would be friends of mine who are involved in the repeal movement um, who are very optimistic and are you know, having their poetry readings at their marches and wearing their repeal jumpers and think it's all going to be done, really need to engage in the politics of this. People,
0: can I ask, are people on the repeal of the outside side a bit naive about the down and dirty political process? Well, which not is all of them, this.
2: obviously. I mean, there are people like, you know, Ruth Coppinger in the committee who's, um, you know, it's going to be discussed today, um, Wednesday, that um, they should ha- have a vote now and vote to have a repeal because what happened last week is a fudge. It's compromise. It, there's a real lack of clarity about what it means. It could mean that there'll be no change at all if if you know if people don't keep their eye on the prize. Um, so th- I think there is a, an element of naivety around a lot of people. I think there's this kind of celebratory expectation that it's all going to be fine and we're going to win this. And it's get, Whereas actually, I think there's a real danger that we could be incredibly disappointed and facing another 30 years of fighting for what it should be, uh, an abortion services in this country, similar to what people have to travel for in Britain.
0: Pop, what's your read of what's going on in the committee right now?
3: Well, I think what has happened, and I wrote a little bit about this last weekend uh, in in the paper, I think what has happened is that the, the process is now moving to the political phase. And Kitty identified some of that in her piece yesterday and obviously was highly critical of it. But it is a necessary phase because it is a, a political process. Ultimately, it ends with... Uh, a referendum, we presume a referendum on changing uh, the constitutional provisions on, uh, on abortion, a-, a proposition for which there is overwhelming uh, public support and opinion poll after opinion poll is clear about that. So the question I think is not so much will the constitutional provisions on abortion be changed, but rather what will they be changed to? Are they deleted completely? Are they changed to alter the balance between the existing constitutional balance between the life of the mother and the life of the unborn child? Is there some sort of an enabling... Uh, an enabling provision to fireproof subsequent octus legislation. But these are all kind of technical, procedural and ultimately political questions. So what the, uh, what the committee will do is decide what recommendations it wants, not just on whether the 8th should stay or go or be changed, but on what follows it. After it has made those recommendations and the government... And then the doll will decide what, uh, what questions to be put to the people. The two big parties um, will have a, uh, a a say in that process commensurate to their doll' strength. Their current belief, and it's one uh, attested to, at least in public terms by repeated polls, is that there is not public support for a complete repeal. Uh, 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 at the moment, and the sort of and the introduction of the sort of regime that uh, that Kitty and many of the repeal campaigners would uh, would like to see. Well, so well, something. Sorry, just short ask
0: you on of that, that? They yeah. just 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 to understand what their thinking is. There are two elements you just described there. They don't believe that, and you said uh, there is support for a complete repeal. That's one element. And then you said, and the sort of legislation which which Kitty, for example, would favour. Do those. Do those, is there a divide between those two things? Is it possible to be, for example, I understand the Sinn Fein position is that they're in favour of a complete repeal, but and relatively restrictive legislation. Restrictive
3: legislation, yeah, and that maybe that, that that is certainly a neater uh, a, a neater legal solution, if you like. So you take it out of the constitution completely, and then uh, and then Parliament decides. But the view amongst. Uh, many politicians, particularly in Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael, is that taking it out of the constitution completely and handing over the responsibility entirely to the Oireachtas is not something that uh, that would currently be passed. And there's some polling evidence to suggest that they're correct in that. Now, public opinion can change over the course of campaigns, uh, uh, but we see no signs of it. Uh, uh, we see no signs of it changing over, over repeated polls. So that that's the question that uh, will now be addressed. And the fact that Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael will have a greater influence over those decisions on what question is to be put to the people is because they're the largest parties in, uh, in our parliament. So when Kitty, you say it's undemocratic,
0: it's not undemocratic. They are the two largest parties in the Dáil.
2: Well, I mean, maybe undemocratic, is, but the fact is the committee agreed a, a programme of work that they agreed in July that there would be a decision made about the issues discussed in each module, and Fianfall and Fianna Gael appear to have moved in to scupper that. And I feel that that's wrong um and i think a decision should be made and it, i mean if they didn't if they didn't think ahead properly about what what the implications of making a decision were at the end of the first module well that's their lookout you know they should have done their homework better and i think they're now trying to undermine and being quite cynical about um the um, the work of the committee and horse trading effectively over women's health women's bodies women's lives
4: Vinton, what, what what do you think of the way this process is going i think um i think we've got to go back to the basics here. Um, a lot of this is based on perception of what the public will, will tolerate ultimately. And, but what the, what the public will tolerate ultimately also depends a lot on what Fine Gael and tell them, you know, at, at least the conservative part of the public. And there is an overwhelmingly good case to be made that the Constitution is just the wrong place to have your uh, principles of abortion legislation in it, right? This case was made in 1982 before we got into this mess in the first place not just by people who are pro-abortion or pro-choice, but actually by people who are just you know, reasonably competent lawyers or people who have just thought a little bit about what a constitution is. A lot of people were saying, look, I'm really against abortion, but having it in the constitution is just madness. This is the wrong place for a, a, a complex issue to be, to be dealt with. And that argument proved to be absolutely right. So whatever your views, right? so remember... The so-called pro-life campaign, who created this in the first place, they didn't get what they wanted out of it. They thought that they were putting a certain thing into the Constitution. They were warned time and time again that what they were putting into the Constitution didn't mean what they thought it meant. And then the Supreme Court has to come out with a judgment which creates a whole other mess that leaves nobody happy. So even if you're quite conservative on this issue, There's a very, very powerful argument for which I am absolutely convinced you will get a majority of people if it's approached responsibly and sensibly by the main political parties to say, look, the Constitution is the wrong place. We went down the wrong road here. We have to undo that. And then we have another conversation to have, which is what kind of uh, legislative regime do we want? But the fact is that you cannot have a legislative regime of any kind until you actually deal with what's in the Constitution. So do I take it then,
0: and correct me if I'm wrong, listening to what you're saying, that given the political realities which Pat was describing, and there are realities of the, the yeah. conservative beliefs of a, 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 quite a large number of people, particularly in the Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael parliamentary parties, but also opinion polls reflect, you know, a, a range of views on what sort of legislation is appropriate. That it, that the real politic may be, from the point of view of somebody like yourself, who who Make, makes the argument you've just made that there may be a political argument for a, agreeing a legislative regime immediately after the repealing of the 8th which would be more conservative than you personally would, well, would the, want in order to achieve yeah, that political well, objective the, the, what what getting, has happened getting is getting the thing the, out of these, the constitution. These
4: two basic principles have to be separated out right? because once you start thinking about and you see I think, I think Kitty's absolutely right about the, the decision that was made by the committee is ludicrous I mean it's a ludicrous fudge to start trying to further amend what's in the Constitution, to put in concepts like rape or fatal, fetal, abnormality into the Constitution. You know, uh, let's remember that since this, this was supposed to deal with the issue once and for all, that was the whole point of putting it into the Constitution from the point of view of the Conservatives who put it there, was this is a line on the sand. It deals with the issue. And in fact, it's been, I think by, in a previous column I called it, it's Irish knotweed. You know, it's, it's this ever-growing, ever-expanding Untamable madness that just keeps growing and growing and growing, with more and more ramifications, more and more lunacy, and more and more suffering for women in the middle of it, which is just kind of completely forgotten about. You know that the actual human reality is uh, uh, is almost completely divorced. So it's it's taken off under its own steam. Remember, we've ne- when we have another referendum, that this will this will be the fifth referendum. Honest, the fifth referendum. We the the one. Uh, thing that was supposed to deal with it became so. Even, we've had two defeated referendums. We also have two other clauses put in to the constitution, which people forget about. I mean, which is the right to information or the right to travel, which, by the way, essentially nullify the substantial clause. Right. So the substantial clause is there to say we are a holy, sacred place. We're different from everywhere else. We don't have abortion, and we don't we don't approve of it under any circumstances. It's a bad thing. Accept that. And then and then yeah. we put in mm. a clause saying. But however, you've got the right to full information, um, non-directive counselling on it, and you have an absolute right to travel to the neighbouring jurisdiction to carry out this ha- heinous, murderous crime, right? It is it, it's, it's it is itself a sort of undermining of law, undermining of constitutional principle, and it just leads more and more. So if, if you put in a clause now which tries to amend that to say except for rape and fatal abnormality or whatever, we just know where this is going to lead. It's going to lead to Five hundred more uh, high court cases. Although it's the citizens the, assembly
0: so. has also recommended that new wording be asserted, inserted. Well, into the Constitution. What, what, what the
4: citizens assembly did was was an interesting um, way of trying to approach it, right? Which was they felt that something had to be put in. And by the way, the citizens assembly is being ignored in this. In, in any case, it's, a, it's an out, it's an outrage the way in which. These citizens, in good faith, you know, gave all their time and all their efforts to do this. And then it's just like, it's like it never happened. you know. Ah, they were just extremists. They just ended up with an extreme position. Actually, what was very interesting was, and this is, it goes to, to Pat's point about whether people might change in the course of referendum, is that this was a representative sample of, of Irish people. And many of them, I'm sure, had very conservative views going into it. And they listened to the evidence and, and they came up with a position which said, look, you can't start doing this. You just can't, the, the more you, you go down this road of trying to bring in these little exceptions and, and, and opening little doors, it just becomes madness. You, you have to try to do it in a clean way. The way they, they suggested was that you would amend the constitution simply to remove the current clauses and then say there is a right for the uh, eruptus to legislate on this issue. Uh, and I think they were doing that because there's some fear. I, I don't see it myself um, that there's some fear that if you simply remove it that there are implied rights in the constitution elsewhere which would stop the eruptus from it kind
0: of confuses place. the very simple proposition that the thing shouldn't yeah. be in the constitution uh, uh, in the first uh, place and, though and I it? actually think they're but, wrong about that but
4: but that's mm. that's 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 a different question but the the, the 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 key point here is there's a gutlessness you know there's an absolute gutlessness every single politician knows because everybody who has looked at this knows from whatever perspective that the constitution is the wrong place for this and what they don't want to do is face up to that very simple reality It is... Their duty as legislators to say, you know, we've got this wrong since 1983. You can see the evidence. It pleases nobody. Let's deal with the fundamental issue. The, the difficulty is, though, whatever
3: your views of whether it should have been there in the first place, is that it is in there now. And I think it will be extremely difficult and probably impossible to separate the question of whether this clause should be in the Constitution and whether it should be taken out or not from what. From what comes afterwards, so one of the things that it seems to me is likely to happen is that there will be draft legislation prepared uh, by in, prepared in the Department of Health are currently preparing several versions of it, and that there will be an ag- a political agreement that if the uh, uh, if Article forty three three is changed, that the doll will then. Legislate along these lines, probably for restrictive, uh, uh, for highly restrictive access to uh, uh, abortion, on the lines Kitty previously indicated. The difficulty is that that will have absolutely no legal standing over in uh, in the course of the amendment. It is simply a political promise, uh, and 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 one that also must be taken in the light of the fact that the government doesn't have a majority in the Dáil, and that both big parties have promised free votes uh, on this. So I don't think, I think that will be part of that debate. I think it'll all be part of the same debate. The idea that you could have, uh, we, we we park the substantive question of in which uh, in, in which circumstances the law should permit abortion. We park that completely and have a debate on whether it should be in the constitution or not seems to me to be however, so though it may be desirable that it, it's With, it's with the understanding
0: that it may or may not happen, so subject mm. to the vagaries of, of you know, of the political, uh, of the Oireachtas of the next one. What do you think of all this, Kitty? I mean, what I'm hearing well, uh, I think, yeah. is, is is perhaps not particularly promising for the repeal of the eighth side.
2: Yeah. O- or I at mean, least for the for
0: objective it. of the repeal of the eighth side for abortion rights in Ireland. Is,
3: is yeah, no, it,
2: I mean, it is, it's all very, um, yeah, worrying, I suppose, would be the, uh, the term. I mean, I think it's worth saying that in two days' time it will be the 50th anniversary of the 1967 Act in England, making it through the through the Commons. It's 27th of October. That David Steele sh- shepherded that through. And if we hadn't had the 1967 Act over the last 50 years, we would have had to have legalised abortion by now in Ireland because women would have been dying of backstreet abortions. It's the only reason we're able to carry on with this rubbish in this country is that we have the 1967 Act, and I think we should all be celebrating it. On Friday, that it had probably saved hundreds of thousands—not well, maybe not thousands, but hundreds of women's lives—is
0: this? I mean, you, you talked earlier about the kind of the idealism and the enthusiasm of, of of many young women on the repeal the eight side. Is that enthusiasm and idealism going to come face to face against some harsh and maybe unpleasant realities of Irish life over the next six or seven months? Those of us who are old enough to remember Finton. Talked about previous referendums. Um, they they weren't occasions. There they were definitely occasions of more heat than light, and, and yeah. worse than that. I
2: mean, I suppose I would hope that um, people's maturity, or political maturity, or sensibilities have moved on a bit since the um, the bad old days of nineteen eighty two and nineteen eighty three. Um, but yeah, I think I mean Savita Halapanavar's death, another anniversary, her fifth anniversary coming up on Saturday of her death. Um, awakened a lot of young Irish women to the realities of Irish life and what the constitutional situation actually meant for real women and could mean for them potentially um, but yeah they are going to come face to face and I, I think it's it, they're going to I think there is going to be a wake up in the next few weeks and months about the fight that's ahead of us. You know that it has been very much a kind of a, a celebratory kind of sense that things are moving and think and history's on our side and things are going to change. Um, but I think there's going to be, a, yeah, I would hope a wake up among um, young Irish women that there's there's a, there's a big fight on our hands. Do you and think, Kitty, that
4: Leo Varadkar's is going to, you know, if if the, if they want to go down the road they're going down. Leo Varadkar's going to have to turn to those young women and a lot of young men and you know and older men too <laughs> you know and say sorry you know you, you, we're just not doing this and remember what they're going to have to say is in the new legislation we're going to repeat what is in the current legislation which is 14 years in jail 14 years in jail for having an abortion or for assisting anybody with an abortion that means the abortion pill that means that's that anybody who assists this is the current situation in Ireland anybody who assists somebody to get an abortion pill in Ireland is, you know, the sentence that's laid down is 14 years in prison. 14 years is is more, well, you know, it's, 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 it's more than almost every other crime, right? So this is the other reality. So it's like, Pat's point is absolutely true, of course, that there is a substantial conservative constituency. But there's also a huge number of people in the middle on this issue who feel... Yeah, look, I'm, I'm uneasy about it. There's all sorts of complications. I don't quite know what I think about it. But if you put the proposition to the vast majority of Irish people to think, are, are you seriously suggesting that we should enforce this law um, for 14 years in jail? I, I, I think the vast majority of Irish people would say no. And then you move back from there and you say, well, so what do you believe? How, how do you want to actually implement a restrictive abortion regime, because remember, what it means is, if you're putting restrictions, you're putting penalties. In the United States, when when far right politicians have said women should be punished, when D- Donald Trump, in the course of the presidential election, said women should be punished for having abortions, even the far right said, "Ah, geez, you can't go that far. That's that's really that's just really so extreme." And yet, this is the mainstream legislative position that Leo Radker and Mehl Martin are going to end up on the way they're going. Right, they're going to end up saying, "We we are taking a position." which is way to the right of Donald Trump, which is way to the right of all but the most lunatic fringe of American politics on abortion. And, and you see, I don't think there's a majority for that either, you know. And, and so, so we're talking about the fact that there isn't a majority for a liberal regime, but there's also not anything like a popular majority for locking women up.
3: Pat? I, I'm, a question I wanted to ask Kitty is that it, do, do you think that, from what you know of the repeal movement, if they are... Confronted, if the ultimate political question is, do you want the status quo, or do you want a less restrictive but still pretty restrictive regime incorporating fatal fatal, fetal abnormalities and 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 such circumstances? Do you think that they will support the limited proposition, or do you think that they would campaign against it on uh, on the basis that you have another go? at some point in the I think there future. will be
2: some who campaign against it. Um, but I think um, most people would, t- people want it out of the constitution. I think that's the ultimate, that That is the goal. And then, if restrictive legislation followed and that was all that was on offer to get it out of the Constitution, I think the majority of people would go for that. So, people would vote for repeal,
0: um, oh, we'll probably regardless repeal. of what would we'll follow to, if they've if at least it if
2: once hmm. it's in the Well, it's no, in.
0: not replace, repeal. But would, if the question
3: would, is, would, if the question if do, is replaced.
0: Well, can I ask you Pat's question yeah, then? Yeah, would no. people vote for replace as opposed to repeal?
2: I suppose it would depend what replaces it. But I, I mean, I think most people's gut reaction would be no, get it out of the Constitution. This is not a decision for you know the constitution. This is for ideally it's between a doctor and a woman, doctor and a girl and her parents. Um that's where the decision should be. But you know, is if that's governed by legislation, at least that can be changed.
0: Isn't that fundamentally what this comes down to politically, Pat, over the next over the next couple of months? It's, it seems to me is that will the Oroctus we we can have all, all these debates which we've been talking about here about legislation and what might follow and the arguments which which Vinton and Kitty have laid out. But if the question is well, it, it, the question for the oroctus the main question almost is going to be is it going to be a repeal proposition or a replace proposition
3: i think that would certainly be the most simple thing but one thing i've learned from you know from trying to cover this story is that it's not reducible to a single Question: It's not possible to say what this is really about is blah blah blah. It's about lots of things, and it's about different things to to uh, to different people. Different propositions mean different things to different uh, to different people. I think what will happen uh, ultimately is I think that the 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 committee, the government, and then the Daul will come up with a package, a legislative constitutional package that will be uh, uh, that will offer people a, 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 a restrictive a liber- a slightly liberalized but still restrictive uh, legal landscape on uh, on abortion i think the most simple with the simplest way of doing that would be to uh, to offer uh, a complete repeal and then uh, a, a package of legislative measures that offered restrictive abortion but that will be campaigned Against on the by uh, by ma- certainly by pro-life voters or anti-abortion voters, but also by some people who are just nervous about the whole thing. And if there's one thing that the polls tell us is that very often people entertain conflicting notions Absolutely. in their heads, so that very mm-hmm. few people I agree with yeah. you, very few people would be supportive of uh, of the sort of penalties that are in the current legislation, wouldn't like to see them implemented. But at the same time, the polls tell us that people are, you talk about the 1967 Act, Kitty, people are not in favour of the sort of
4: regime that exists uh, in the UK uh, following that Act. It depends on the questions that are asked though, doesn't it? And I I think this is where it's not unreasonable well, to, to expect does, some to a political leadership. To point, it does, but it also, you know, it. it, it I agree, and this is where it, Leo Radker has to step up, right? So, so Leo, Leo Radker is swanning around the world. I'm young. I'm, I'm, I'm sort of liberal. I'm, you know, part of this international liberal regime. Yeah, I mean, how's he going to get on with Macron, and how's he going to get on with Trudeau? You know, when he's saying. Uh, By the way, I'm I'm bringing in new legislation in Ireland that's going to keep locking up women for having abortions. You know, there are real choices to be made politically. And political leadership will be crucial because people will look to political leadership to to provide some kind of clarity. I think you're absolutely right about the fact that people have all sorts of views on it. But, but you know, it's roughly 20 percent of people are in favor of an extremely restrictive abortion regime. It's maybe fewer, I think. Yeah, but, yeah. yeah, yeah. I'm, yeah. I'm, being, generous, yeah, sorry. Yeah, I'm being generous, one, about yeah, that, right? I'm being generous, right? So, and then you have maybe thirty percent of people on the other side 30, who were who in favor yeah. of something like the 1967 UK Act, which which is effectively our legislation. And then you have a lot of people in the middle who who have all sorts of subtleties and nuances. And those people in the middle will be looking for some kind of coherent leadership. And responsible leadership in this regard says the Constitution is the wrong place to have it and locking women up for having abortions is just unacceptable in the 21st century. We're going to move on
0: because the clock is against us a a little bit here and I do want to touch on another subject. Uh, You were sharing a page with Kitty in yesterday's Irish Times, Fintan, and you were talking on a a, a (laughs) a subject which you've touched on at times before, your old friends in the banks um, and the culture of impunity in in Ireland and the scandal of these tracker mortgages being denied to people.
4: Yeah. um, yeah, I mean, you know, I've been very struck by the language around the tracker mortgages. I've been writing about this for quite a long time now, you know, and it's it's interesting that it suddenly kind of has become a big political issue. Um, and the reason it's become a big political issue is because for the first time we had the Public Accounts Committee hearing from people who have been directly affected by hearing, hearing those stories. And it's very interesting in Ireland, you know, that you can, you can write for years and years about an issue and, and it's kind of there, but it doesn't really take off. It's people's stories. And again, this, you know, in terms of our previous conversation about abortion, it's gonna be people's stories that are gonna actually, you know, really affect how people will vote on this in the in in, in in the long term. But you had these shocking stories, you know. You had these stories of really kind of people being absolutely tormented, destroyed, their lives being ruined, um, and then suddenly just put a human face on what's actually been going on, you know, the realization that that uh, but that this is in any other circumstance, right? This is the kind of testimony you would be hearing in court. Victim impact statements. This is what we're really getting in our political system, victim impact statements. And yet there's a complete disjunction between the victimization and the suffering on the one side and personal responsibility on the other side. Right? So last month we had the um, CEO of AIB was in giving evidence about this, uh, and he said, you know, this all resulted from a complete administrative breakdown, right? That was the, that's the phrase, right? Um, which, and what I was kind of wondering about on, on, uh, when I read about on Saturday is, you know, so why isn't complete administrative breakdown now being taught in the business schools, you know? Because
0: it was so successful and profitable. It's
4: incredibly <laughs> profitable. I mean, you know, <laughs> it, there should be courses. I mean, there should be, you know, the next big, the triumph of failure should be like the next big business book, you know? that if you have a complete administrative breakdown, everything goes chaotically wrong. And the only effect of this is that your bottom line is massively enhanced. Um, uh, uh, but the language that's being used around this is, all oh, the culture of the banks has to change. I, I've been, you yeah, know... this culture thing. Heather we should be responsible yeah. for it, I mean, yeah. you know, we've been hearing about this culture as if something grew, grew on the walls, you know, yeah. for, for, for 30 years. um the word scandal even, uh, it's very interesting when, when Philip Lane, the 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 head of the central bank, was was in the PAC. It's a very interesting moment where it's it's kinda of put to him, This is theft, isn't this? And there's a silence and he says, It's a scandal <laughs> you know. <laughs> And it's very deliberately using this word, scandal, because we know what scandal means in Earth. You know, we, we've, God knows, we've been through this, uh, you know, over and over and over again. A scandal is when we all get very upset and we think, that's really terrible. How could this happen? Uh, something must be done. Somebody somewhere must, check. you know, must pay for it's this. time
0: for a seven-year-long investigation. It's, it's time for a long the, investigation.
4: Yeah. <laughs> and lots of lawyers will make a lot of money out yeah, of it. Yeah. And we will have a couple of reports. And there will be some compensation, maybe, for people who are involved. And we say, this must never, ever happen again. And then we'll wait for the next one to come along. You know, nothing mm. will change. And there's a simple question here. Why does nothing change? Why has the Irish banking system been objectively corrupt for at least 30 years? You know, it's really started in 1987 when almost the entire Irish banking system, with one or two honourable exceptions, engaged in a massive fraud, I mean, massive tax evasion fraud, where they opened bogus non-resident accounts on a huge scale, they knew very well. I mean, this, these were people, this was the local farmer, the local doctor, the local priest, in some cases, coming in and saying, I don't live here. I live in Bermuda. Um, can I open an, a non-resident account so I don't have to pay this tax? And this was done on a massive scale. This was a huge fraud. I mean, you know? It, it, everybody accepts that this was the case. It was exposed by very good journalism, not by the banks themselves. It was exposed by, there was a whistleblower within the banks, the first real kind of whistleblower, um, uh, Mr. Spollen, who was the the, the uh, internal auditor in AIB, who was crucified, absolutely destroyed, uh, internally lost his job. The stuff came out. There was a very very good. It's one of the m- most successful pieces of, of of political operation in Ireland. The system actually did really well. People, you know, the PAC had a very very good investigation into it. It all came out. Uh, nobody was prosecuted. Nobody was disbarred from being a director of a bank, um, and. Absolutely nothing changed. Nothing changed, and as a result, what happened then is again and again and again. We've had the overcharging scandals. We've had the you know offshore uh, schemes. We've had the um, foreign exchange. People were being gouged on foreign exchange uh, accidentally, again, so, to the benefit of the banks, so, so again so, and again so to and again. To and say, again.
0: this isn't a culture, this is a system a that system. privileges yeah. certain types of crime and makes them uh, and, and why, uh, unprosecutable why it, or chooses why, not to prosecute.
4: Why wouldn't it? So it, it's, it's not that they're unprosecutable. It's that there is absolutely no will in the system to prosecute white collar crime. Matthew Elderfield, who was the outgoing financial regulator, the person who kind of cleaned up the banks more than anybody else after the her- horrendous crash, Took the opportunity of his last appearance before the Doyle Finance Committee, uh, the Rooks Finance Committee, uh, out of the blue. In a sense, he made a statement saying, "Look, you've got a real problem here. You don't prosecute white collar crime. If you don't do something about this, this is going to keep happening. It, it, no, it, it, no change. It, it's, it's true."
3: I I remember those the dirt hearings. It was one of the first gigs I had in journalism when I was working for the Business Post. Was to sit in that room in Kildare House that the subcommittee, uh, the PAC subcommittee, he was, invest- 12 was 12 investigating. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Finton was Finton was there a bit. He was, he was a veteran even then. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, and, and I remember distinctly, um, and you talk about Tony Spollin, who was the guy who brought this to light in a in, in a responsible and conscientious Absolutely. way within AIB, as was his job as an internal auditor. to Say, guys, hold on, we've got uh, we've got a problem here. He was monstered out of uh, out of that bank, and I still remember the the the, the sense of uh, I, I remember. Looking at the bank chief executives coming in with the most expensive several of the most expensive lawyers in town in tow in tow with them and the sense of uh, the sense that these guys were utterly untouchable no matter what the findings of the committee might otherwise be and so uh, 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 and so it proved to be but I think the link between that, apart from that kind of cultural uh, culture of 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 banking arrogance and the un, personal untouchability, uh, the, the the thing that links those two is this inability of any regulatory or law enforcement authorities to to go after individuals who made these decisions. So you can't really go after a bank. You know, you find the bank. The bank s- has a lot anyway, of money, yeah, yeah. and anyway, yeah, it, gets, it raises the money the from, its, from its customers. Its but, but what you can yeah. do, and what happens in places that uh, that take regulation seriously, such as uh, such as the United States, is that there is individual responsibility on the part of people in large organisations who make these uh, who make these sort of decisions. And that is something that's completely missing here. Not just in relation to the banks, to be honest. It's a broader cultural failing uh, in in this country. I mean, when was the last time you've seen, you know, civil servants uh, or people responsible for the administration of public services that fail egregiously for for thirty years? We had a big poster for Russell Carroll
0: Kelly outside this building for the last few weeks, and it's Russell Carroll Kelly's dad saying something on the lines of, "It's a victimless crime. It's like (laughs) dumping waste in the ocean or not paying your road tax." And that is the kind of approach isn't it to, 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 to this kind uh, of crime absolutely it's it? not understood
4: but, as crime and this is why the language has been very important the political language has been culture 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 and then scand- you know, it's, it's a scandal all to avoid the possibility that we might be looking at crimes now the, the, the legislation is pretty clear right it, 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 is, it, it is a criminal offence to take somebody's money or property uh, by deception whether that benefits you or somebody else, right? So if you're a bank official and you take somebody's uh, tracker mortgage off them, cost them 30,000 quid, it would seem pretty obvious that you're deceiving that person into making a gain for the bank. And I'm not a criminal lawyer, um, but it would seem to me that there's a prima facie case, right? That surely at least some of these 30,000 cases involve the deception of the person to make a gain for the bank. The astonishing thing is that The central bank has a statutory duty. It's not a matter of choice. It's in the legislation. It was one of the things we supposedly got as a reform of our banks, that the central bank has to report the crimes, uh, suspicion of crimes to the guards. There was a lot of reporting last week of, of the central bank appearing before the PAC. And there was a lot of excitement about, oh, they've been in touch with the guards. Actually, if you look at it, the evidence they gave was exactly the same evidence they gave last April, which is we've had discussions with the guards. We've, we're, 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 we're consulting with the guards. Have you actually reported a single crime to the guards? No, there's not a single crime so far. In thirty thousand cases, well, are we back to culture then? On that, Can I just? I want to bring you in. Mm. I was actually,
0: I was actually in Mount joy yesterday, uh, meeting some of the residents there, um, and none of them appeared to be bankers. Uh, yeah. Very far from it, in fact. And in your normal beat on social affairs, you will deal with people who come into close contact with the criminal justice system, yeah. and they don't get treated in the same way, do they?
2: Well, it's interesting I'm just reading a report of um of Oberstown uh, looking at the which is the child detention um centre and of the population there, twenty three percent of them are traveller. Um, 80% of them have been through the care system, um, something like 30% of them have lost at least one parent I mean the kind of, the people who come in contact with the criminal justice system are people who have been let down more or less since the moment they were born by society um, and yeah I mean I, th- I was listening to Pat and Finton there and I, I think you know in Ireland we've always had a com- somewhat ambivalent relationship with the law and um, and um, whether we see things as crimes or not we've just looked at the breath test death scandal and th- all those kind of scandals in Irish culture that we're familiar with. Um, but yeah, but when it comes to the powerful and the rich and the, the, the business leaders and the banks and that kind of thing, there is a sense, and I suppose it's got particularly stronger um, since the recession and under Fine Gael and that kind of uh, more right-wing view of society that they are somewhat untouchable, that they are the ones who really, who make the wealth, who make the make the world go round, who um, look at, and they look after each other, and um, the idea that, I mean, I, I, I don't think anyone's going to be prosecuted as a result of this. I mean, I'd say there's huge lobbying going on at the moment in the background between the banks and the government that mm-hmm. you know we you know we can't be damaged we can you know we'll pay a bit of compensation but you know politically and reputationally you know we can't see people going to jail we can't see people being Absolutely. you know so yeah. uh, whereas in America you know there is and and in England there's a huge respect for law and order there is you know if you break the law you you pay you do the crime you do the time you know whereas here I- you do the crime it's like Asha will sort it out you it's know it's not
4: in the national interest. Yeah, this is the, you know, and, and you know, uh, 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 it might seem I'm using this phrase uh, cynically and sceptically, which I am, but it's but it's actually is used. If you look at the public record, if you go back to the dirt scandal, for example, you know, we had uh, the, the then head of the central bank, I mean, saying more or less, yeah, we knew this was going on, but it wasn't in the national interest to, to rock the boat because, oh, there might be capital flight or, you know, if we didn't, mm-hmm. basically, if we didn't allow people
3: central bankers
4: bogeyman to yeah. break the law then, oh, God, you know, God knows what the consequences might be. And I think there's something that nobody is addressing in relation to the Tracker Mortgage scandal, which was it was in the national interest to gouge these people, right? The overwhelming story was the narrative was the good news story. Yes, we, these banks are horrific institutions. Yes, they have destroyed the entire society. We've lost our sovereignty because of them. But it's all worth it because, look now, they're getting back on into profitability. And so the narrative, which was not just an Irish narrative, it was a European narrative. Look at these people. This is the great example of the austerity, the the, the, the bank bailouts. It's all worth it because because the bottom line is getting better, and the people with tracker mortgages were a problem to the narrative. You know, they they were they were. Um, they were not only at that point because of the way the interest rates had changed where they not making money out of them, we're actually losing money on them, right? So, so yeah, they I've were the happily problem. I've been happy making
0: profits out of my bank for years because I'm on a track of mortgage. Absolutely. <laughs> uh, but, you know... Congratulations,
4: you. Thanks very much, Pat. <laughs> those of us who have track of mortgages were the problem, right? And uh, I think one of the reasons why there won't be prosecutions and why this won't go too far in terms of probing who made the decisions, what did the Department of Finance know about it? what did the central bank actually know? You know, they, they're they're all looking and they're saying, it's it's great the banks are making profit. Yeah. Uh, this is the story we want. Did they have any interest in looking under the bonnet? Well, there's, there's, saying,
0: there's, there's bound to be sins of omission there, aren't there? There's bound to have been financial reports that came through that show that, oh, look, a remarkable number of people have yeah. chosen to come off their yeah. tracker mortgages, yeah. which, you know, if you're one more interested, one would want to think about it. Yeah. that. Well, the, the clock it, really is it, ticking. It's, so it it's kind of, of a
3: contractual point about whether the bank was entitled to deprive them of their uh, of their trackers or not. The banks, I, I don't think the banks are suggesting that people willfully chose to come off. the No, trackers. but if you it's were about looking whether at those they numbers, right so if you had some kind of regulatory and that's why today's story, numbers, today's yeah? story is quite significant. Dominic Coyle's story in the front page of, uh, of of the paper this morning because it suggests that there may have been another cohort in AIB. Who were entitled to revert to tracker mortgages at the time, but the bank decided that they didn't qualify for that. So it seems to me the next phase of this is to examine those contracts and to take independent legal advice. Strangely enough, the bank's legal advice confirmed to it it was entitled to do whatever it liked in this regard. But whether that stands up to independent scrutiny what, is what do you say, fi- finally, What
0: what do you say to somebody listening to this podcast who says I've been listening to it? You lot gas bagging about the bloody banks for the last 30 years and still nothing has changed. I just chose to choose to be completely cynical about a political system which fails
3: over the course of generations to address this identifiable problem. I would say tune in next week and there will be more gas bagging <laughs> on similar uh, on on similar subjects. I mean, to, to an extent, you know, uh, it's it's somewhat tried to say we get the uh, we get it's a broader question, of course, it's somewhat tried to say we get the politics that uh, that we deserve, you know. But I mean, we go back to our, our earlier discussion and, you know, the uh, the voters of our great nation of. Chosen to put a particular set of politicians uh, in in power, there was a period, maybe seven or eight years ago, where it looked as if profound change might be uh, might be on the way. But recent trends suggest that that is not the case, and that the uh, you know the 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 small C conservative parties that people have voted for in overwhelming numbers since the since the, uh, since the beginning of this state will continue to dominate our politics. I'm sure there are positives uh, to that, but there are certainly negatives too.
0: So you heard it here first, it's all your own fault. We'll be back with more of that next week. Thanks very much indeed to Fintan, to Pat and to Kitty. And that's it for this edition of Inside Politics. Thanks to our producer, Declan Conlon, and engineer JJ Vernon. And remember, you can find us on irishtimes.com slash podcast. You can get us on iTunes or whatever your preferred podcast provider might be. But until the next time, goodbye and thanks very much indeed for listening.
1: Ever catch yourself eating the same flavourless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Geeky Palmer.